Welcome to the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast, where we feature unscripted interviews with graduates of the United States Military Academy Class of 1991. The Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast with your host, Jamie Schleck, starts now. All right, welcome everybody to the Old Grad Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Schleck, and today is, what is today? Today is May 3rd, 2020, and um, we are uh, very honored to have one of our esteemed classmates, uh, Dan Clark from Company C1, who's going to be our guest tonight on the Old Grad Podcast, and so let me let me first begin by welcoming him. So, Dan, are you there? Yeah, hey, welcome there. How are you? Hey, how are you? Thanks for thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us on the Old Grab Podcast. So, um, you mentioned Dano. Dano is your nickname. How did you come up with it? Like, who who nicknamed you Dano? At the prep school, Dave Filer just said Dano, and it stuck, and everybody picked it up, and it just and that's where that's where it all began. Did so, it go through? I like, guess you had to come from the. Did it go through a, like webs at West Point as well? Because I know like. Not not everything that goes through the prep school like comes through as a uh, as a as a tradition or as a as a nickname in, into West Point. Yeah, it did. It uh, I think you know, um, like Joe Duncan, Bob Dorda, the the C one classmates uh, who were prepsters, they just started calling me Dano, and everybody else did too. So it yeah, it totally carried forward. Who were the classmates in Company C one that were prepsters? Uh, let's see, uh, Joe Duncan, myself, Bob Dorda, and I think that's it. Uh, so that, that goes, that, so that goes, that's confirming, that's confirming a, um, a theory that I, that I've had, which is that it goes, is alphabetical, that they did like zero, there was zero uh, effort to try to like disperse you guys by anything other than just your last name, because you got Clark. Duncan and Dorda, all in C1, right? Dorda, sure. Yeah. Like, why overthink it? Alphabet works. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. But what's interesting about the prep school, I think, is that there's, you know, there is like this kind of like subculture of the prep school. All the prepsters that came in, they all kind of knew each other. They're all like, there's, there's this already like this set um, network of people that everybody knew everybody. But there's also... Within the prep school, I think there's like three distinct cultures that already exist. You've got your athletes that are basically being redshirted. That's why they're in the, the prep school for a year. You've got your, um, your army and prior service people that are basically coming in that were identified in the military as high, high potential soldiers with a lot of promise. And they said, let's get them into, the, into West Point. And then everybody else. There's people that were for whatever reason, they, they didn't get their nomination or they really wanted to go there, but they maybe weren't quite academically prepared yet. And so that was the everybody else group. So you were in the prior service group, right? Right. Yeah, I got there. I, the, the one thing I noticed was, um, you know, when you're in your unit doing your work as a private and uh, um, you do your PT test, you go to work, you do whatever happens. And then, then you get into this, we got into the prep school environment and I was, I was blown away by guys like Jerome Brock and um, a couple of the other infantry prepsters who were just so brilliant, but what they, they wanted to do like infantry, they wanted to do the hardest job that, you know, America had for them. 
I, I, I love it. I love that about that group. So, so my, my game at the prep school went way up real quick. Um, uh, like from PT to running to a- academics to, you know, um, I made the, the honor roll a couple of times, but just because the, the, the competition around you and the talent around you just lifts your game up, you know? So that was, a, that, and Scott Clemenson was my roommate and, uh, you know, he had like, um, just come from learning Korean, uh, you know, like, and, and so was like Daniel Clevenger, these guys. So there was Clev, a lot of I love guys. Clev. Clev, Clev and I go way back because Clev and I were in the same battalion and we also ended up being in the same, the same units in the military, in the army too. So I love Clev. He's, he's something else. Yeah. So before we get to the whole prep school thing, I, I just, I, I, I digress for a second, but so tell me like, where are you? What are you doing? Like, what's work look like? What's your what's your day to day? Kids, family life, the whole the whole shebang. Tell me what's going on. Uh, today I uh, had a. I'm totally wiped out right now. I spent the last five hours in the sun. It's about ninety degrees. Uh, but I was kayaking with my oldest son. He's uh, just turned twenty four yesterday, and um, my youngest is turned twenty two. They're both up in Austin, so I ganged up on this weekend before Mother's Day to do like a dual kid birthday. So one's um, and and I'm in San Antonio. They're up in Austin, and uh, I've been here since 2006. So this was the last Army posting to Fort Sam Houston, and uh, and I got out in 2010. I think I was the first one of our class out because I had the prior service time. Um, I think among the prepsters, I think I was one of the first ones to, to, to pull the ripcord there on retiring. Um, and so I've basically been, uh, I've done about eight years as a GS civilian uh, working both for Installation Mission Command and now the Air Force um, was the last of the services to create that entity and enterprise look at uh, installation management. So I got, I got picked up to work with them and I'm doing program management essentially um, managing a team of data scientists. So, um, but yeah, San Antonio is a, a fun little city, uh, military city, USA, and I'm working for the air force now. Um, and I'm pretty steeped in a lot of the fraternal 501 C3, uh, like we used to have army aviation association, quad a with the aviation, um, affiliate of 501 C. Uh, the air force has the Dedalian, which is, they trace their heritage back to um, the World War One aviator. So I do a, very active in that. That's sort of my uh, keep it keep with the military feel um, and hang out with the, the aviation side. And uh, um, single now after two years, uh, my wife and I didn't survive. Twenty four years, raised two great boys, didn't really survive the empty nest syndrome. Um, so the things kind of fell apart and sort of like the space shuttle um, Columbia on reentry once the kids were up in college, you know? So that's a, that's a life-size destabilizing event, but, you know, picking up and moving on and, and, and going about life um, day at a time. So yeah, that's in a nutshell. My oldest works for Facebook and my youngest works for, for Amazon right now. And he's still a senior. So, and they're day and night. They are so day and night. Nurture nature. It's all nature. That's my theory. Really? It's all, it's all nurture. It's all nurture. Yeah. You think? Nature. All nature. All in the DNA. All in the yeah. DNA. Okay. 
So like what you said, program management for data scientists, like what kind of data, who's, who's doing what, like what, what are you managing? What, what data sets or what, like for the air force, what's the, well, the, the, the largest thing is that we look at the infrastructure. So the, all the DOD services use, um, sustainment management system and it's been in, it's been around for about 10 years. And so there's just a, just a mountain of data on every building, every component, air conditioning, electrical, trusses, roofs, foundations, doors, windows, all of that data is just messed with, uh, it's recorded every day. Every time there's a, a craftsman who goes out to a building to do an inspection or that data goes into um, that database. And so what we use that data for is we would take that and uh, we paired it with uh, the funding levels. Um, like this is all the engineers out there might know this, but uh, PRV is the plant replacement value. And, and the air force invests and the army does too. They invested about one eight percent PRV. Like just give you an example, Disney invests in its facilities at 6%. They have to have everything shiny and everything working. Well, the military is way, way underneath the, the uh, industry standard of about 4%. And, and so everything's falling apart on the infrastructure. And what we did is we took the funding available, this, this knowledge of all of the data, and we ran some predictive modeling um, to show what the Air Force would look like in 10 years, what it would look like in 20 years at steady state funding. Um, and we used you know, the modern business intelligence software to really tell that story. So we changed, we changed the course of the ship, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, the DOD, they move as a big, slow lumbering beast. And we were able to, um, senior leaders bought it and started throwing money at our FSRM problem. That's one. And we have about 134 different measured portfolios, um, whose funding we chase. And if they have data, we, we use it if they don't, they don't, but that's the biggest example of what that's all about. Wow. So Dan, I have to apologize. I have, um, I did not expect this to be the case. I have got to deal with a family, family situation. I just am getting texts with my wife here. So, um, unfortunately I'm going to have to call, I'm going to have to call an audible here if you don't mind. And we're going to have to postpone our continuation of this conversation because I got to deal with something on the home front, unfortunately. And so um, uh, I'm sorry. I've got- okay, we're back. We're back in the Old Grab podcast after uh, our first aborted attempt on Sunday night. And I apologize. I had to leave due to some family situations I was dealing with. And so thank you, everybody, for your patience. Thank you, Dan, for understanding. Um, I think I owe you an explanation. You know, we were. We were, we were talking, actually, you were just mentioning about your two boys um, who are, I think, 24 and 22, you said, and they're like right. nine day difference. And you said, you can't explain it to they They both grew up in the same environment. And so they're very different. And there's got to be some, you know, some nature because nurture was similar or whatever. Um, I experienced some of, the stuff, some of the same stuff with my kids. And I think it's nature. My kids, some of them take after me in that they are like, last minute planners. They just get shit done at the last moment. I mean, they, they, you know, it, it has, it has served me well in general if I try to make enough time, but I always tend to wait till the last minute to get something done. And so my son had a very big paper that was due on Monday morning 
And of course, you know, it with this coronavirus, everybody working at home and stuff like, you know, you don't really, you're not like in school to like think about it, you know? And so like he had this mm-hmm. Sunday night paper that was due and my wife was riding his ass about getting it done. And she's like, you need to get home and help me and help me get on it. I mean, he's a really good student. He's an amazing student, but you know, this one particular class was just, you know, eating at him. And so he's kind of a math and science guy. And this is like a touchy feely, like, uh, U.S. history, and she's like this way lefty liberal uh, teacher who's like, you know, I, I don't know, just you know, anti uh, anti everything. And so, um, so anyway, he he was writing this paper. It's like I know she's not gonna like this, and but he finally got it done, and it it was like it was like a weight lift off the shoulder when he finally got the thing out the door, and and he was like, oh, thank God, it's so great. But just it's it's amazing. So that's that's. I don't know if that's probably both nature and nurture. She's been watching me and my wife also tends to wait till the last minute to do a lot of stuff too. And she's always packing like a million things in. So anyway, that's what I was dealing with. It was not really, I wouldn't quote it as an, an emergency, but it was a family issue that was emergent. So thank you for your, yeah. for your patience and your uh, perspective. Uh, that, that strikes on a theory. Um, uh, well, it, it's on the nurture side of that, but how did how did West Point nurture us? Well, the social paper example is like it's a last minute experience, and on oddly enough, all throughout life, when uh, in work and other things, uh, I don't get creative until the last couple of days. I can't turn it on if I have a hundred days to do something. There's no creativity or energy or enthusiasm on day zero, but get me to day ninety ninety five. And I'm peaked. It's where I perform. It's really weird. Um, maybe that's a nature and a nurture thing, but I call it the social paper syndrome that we kind of get really good in the last couple of days before an event. So Did you see West Point sing- was posting on Twitter. They had their social paper, like virtual social paper turn in. So kids were doing these crazy things like riding like goats at home and like, you know, like, like jet skiing and like with their social, like they, Cause they made a really big deal. Now the social paper run is like an actual event. It's like, they got, when we, it was just starting to get big when we were there, it is now like a major event at West point, the social paper. Yeah. Run. I've got some good pictures from that, uh, that era. So, well, anyway, happy Cinco de Mayo to everybody. Uh, shout out to Jeff Helms who turned me on to Modelo. Um, Jamie, we have a little C1 class rule going that if you hear your name, you got a drink. So I think he's in Brooklyn somewhere right now. So, had to drive to Atlanta to first to enjoy a Modelo with Jeff back in uh, 2017. Had never had it before. I live in San Antonio for 16 years. To Jeff Helms, you got to drink. Drink up. <laughs> who's some other who's some other C1 people that need to drink? How about Bubba Norm Leck. Marini? Norm Bubba Marini, Bubba Leck, Nat Rainey, uh, Joe Duncan, Bob Dort. I don't think Bob Dort is on, but uh, I was going to. Well, actually, if they hear it on the replay, they got a drink. So wherever yeah, you are, you're listening, if you're go. going for a run, you're driving in the car, pull over, you got to take it. You got to go do a shot or something, right? For Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. It's, it's maybe actually, it's actually good planning that we actually had to postpone. We go to Cinco de Mayo. So now you and I can have a couple of beers together. I actually yeah. have a, I have a Corona in my garbage can right here. I ran out of my Corona. So I'm moving on to Goose, my Goose Islands next. That's, well, you can't really see because I got a green. Look, I got a green screen. You can't see my green. Hold on. Put it in front of your face. There you go. I put my face. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah yesterday it would have been uh, May the Fourth be with you. You, you know, you see like a little bit of green around my my 
my big ass bouffant hair that I got going on right now because I, my coronavirus hair. I'm I'm dying to get my hair cut. It's like killing me. It's like so long. It's like a it's like a bush up here. <laughs> it's weird when I, the wind I'm, when the wind makes contact. Like now, I, I've always had short hair, and now I take my Jeep out for a ride, and I feel my hair getting blown around. And that's like that's a sensation you just haven't I haven't had in 30, 40 years. You know, so it's weird that it blows around and puts you into that weird. I need a haircut mode. That's something that doesn't change when you get out. I don't think. I mean, I, I've seen a couple people with long hair, but for the most part, I just I think most most of us just get so used to having your hair short, you don't want it any other way. I've never I've never wanted my hair other than you know like you know basically like a military haircut. Oh. Yeah, you go to my barber. My I was telling I was. My barber is like dying to like get back to business, but they've been completely shut down. But today, today I got the, um, the antibody test for coronavirus because I was sick back in January. I was actually in China back in January and I got sick when I came home. I'm hoping that I might have some kind of immunity to this thing and I can go get a haircut. That would be great. Mm. You should get a special pin for your lapel or something, you know, so you they know so people know like hey this yeah. guy's like you know he, yeah that, well yeah. we'll see i, I had hope, something in january as well that uh leveled me i never get sick so i'm, I'm hope i'm I, I i checked around with the medical system here in san antonio the, the military system's pretty big and they said um the city would be testing that by mid-may but the first thing that they were looking for were to get people who are recently recovered so that they could have greater donations to the blood bank. And that was probably, you know, mid-April when I, I poked around to figure that out. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd be all over that. I mean, I would definitely give blood if I, if I have the, uh, I mean, I give blood anyway, but I definitely would give blood making sure that I gave the antibodies away. Yeah. I'm forbidden for giving blood because um, they, if you were in the, if you were in Germany in the 80s um, and you ate hamburgers at army mess halls, you are a carrier of mad cow disease or something like that. Anyway, for, I'm forever forbidden from uh, giving blood. Now, I thought they would have figured it out by now, but nope, can't do it. Question like 20. Did you, you gave blood at West Point a bunch of times, I bet, right? Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed that. If you have the free cookies. I've gotten calls from people to try to get the blood lady on. I like that. Like that would be the blood lady's probably what she's probably like 65, 70 years old right now. Like just some old, you know, probably some grandmother just living her life. Like, you know, back in the day, these crazy cats, they scream like, like bloody murder. Every time I spoke, I love to find, she would be interesting to talk to. Like, what were you thinking about this crazy bunch of people that would scream bloody murder, like crazy every time we gave blood? <laughs> this is, one of those kind of things i just have to imagine it would be the funnest thing you do during the week if you have a job like taking blood out of people's arms that's got to be the funnest thing you do you know uh, go listen to four thousand people wave yell and scream and wave napkins over their head when you that's if you got a sense of humor that's the best thing you do during a week of you know dealing with sick people and pulling blood out of people i, I was know. talking to chris barden chris barden from company g1 <laughs> And they would have their plebes put ketchup on their arms and run to the run to the poop deck like like they give blood when when the blood lady came. Oh, just 
That's so crazy. That's funny. I think we have Good way to, to do or something. To, to let off some steam. So, mm. so Dan, I got a chance. I, I listened to the first couple minutes of our conversation. And, you know, one of the things about this podcast, and I'm trying to get better at, at being a better interviewer, is to be more present with what people are saying. Because sometimes people are saying something, and I'll be listening to it on the after, on the replay, and be like, oh, I should have asked that question. Or, oh, that was so interesting. But I was thinking about getting to the next topic, so I really wasn't thinking about what they were saying. And so going back to what you were saying before in our last podcast, you're talking about the readiness state, using data and analytics to determine the readiness of military installations. That's the work that you're doing now as a DOD civilian is basically big data analytics and comparing best practices to industry and looking at how are we relative to our crumbling infrastructure compared to like Disney or some other, some other entities, right? That's basically what you're doing is trying to kind of like uh, uh, have that data bubble up to the top. Right. We use the PRV, which is plant replacement value as just a, a, a marker to understand where you are, right? To, like we said of Disney, they're at 6%. Well, they have to be because they have to have a pretty face, a shiny facility. Everything has to be pretty and new, and it's their business model. So you can't, as the Air Force or the Army or DOD, you can't argue for 6%. And maybe 4% would be a stretch. But then when you compare the fact that we're trying to run the defense on less than 2%, um, you know, and the infrastructure goes back, you know, 50, 60, 70 years in some cases, um, it's quite significant. And then Everything, you know, with the world pivoting to Asia um, and we have that that infrastructure out there dates back from World War Two um, and it's all in the ocean. It's salt water. It's islands. It's all that it, the decay and the destruction is. I mean, very noticeable and uh, it's very pricey. So, yeah, that's what we've been able to do. We've been able to we we we, we just took our, our uh, cost data. Um, our funding and we set it at steady state and we said here's your degradation and you know civil engineers know that we know how long a hvac compressor runs we know how long a roof truss system lasts right so every system and every component has a degradation curve some things degrade in two years some things degrade in 20 years and then everything has a replacement value. And so we, we modeled all of that. We, it's 55,000 facilities of, uh, in the Air Force. And we, we modeled the degradation over time at steady state funding. And then by 10 years, and, and it's this, the visualization we created has a play axis. It's a heat chart. And it, it basically, you just see everything turn red quickly. And it's, uh, it was effective, right? Because we used some modern uh, visualization software called Tableau. That's what all the COVID software is. If anybody's been tracking that, that uh, interoperability with the, your data and that visualization platform is great. So we were pretty much leading the DOD civil engineer field with the use of that data, the modeling and the visualization of it. And uh, got something like 1.9 billion uh, given to us over the five-year POM. So it was a huge home run for us. So that's 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 the best example we've had of you know using good data, um, and we didn't have. So what, we only had about. What's the scariest? What's the scariest thing you've seen? Like, wh where is the infrastructure the most stretched across DOD? Like, like, like Hoover Dam is about to give way any second. Like, like, what, what's what's going on? 
are the Russians listening to this podcast? They could be. <laughs> no, it, you just think about when the nuclear uh, infrastructure was built um, and the fact that it's pretty much uh, still the same stuff, same system. A um, bunch of guys living in a hole with plumbing and air conditioning. And, you know, so that, that infrastructure is, um, it's not as easy to, you know, upgrade that, Change. you know, you don't just, you don't just <laughs> level the building and build a new one. You, you have to keep the same thing. And, and all they do really is just, uh, and I'm not a civil engineer. I don't, I don't know this stuff as a trade, um, but I just hear it, you know, as shop talk. Um, that, that's the one area that the, the Air Force is, you know, if, if they were given a blank check, what would they fix it? And how would they fix that would probably be it. Um, that's, that's probably the, you know, the most uh, critical mission set with the oldest um, infrastructure combo. So the launch button is like one of those like old big ass like buttons, like a red button that you actually press in. Like, it's not like some kind of like, uh, yeah, you like, gotta watch gets, uh, get smart bio biometric security or something. None of that stuff exists, huh? Yeah. I don't know. I don't, it's not, I don't know what goes on in those trenches, yeah. but you know, the air force is run by fighter pilots and they're all about their airplanes and stuff. And so if you're a, if you're a cop or a nuclear guy, you're kind of a second class citizen, you know? In the you're Air already Force second class citizen if you're in the Air Force. Yeah, yeah. They're they're a fun bunch. They don't get things like op boards. Like like they don't get that. They don't get commander's intent. It just blows me away. Hey, uh, we need to tell everybody to do something, and here's what I think they need to do. And it's our job to tell our commander what they need to do. And let's put an op board together and tell everybody what to do. Uh, no, we don't do that. That's so like not us, you know. They're commanders. They know what they're doing. Okay. You're like, I don't know else. I don't know how you want to get this stuff done, but uh, what gets uh, inspected gets respected. So I don't know. Yeah, that's when I've had the culture. I've had to deal with the culture change of, you know, being the army ops G3 type. Um, the world revolves around op orders and the commander's intent. And now I'm dealing with the Air Force. But. It is interesting, you know, you see, there's definitely like these distinct cultures that exist. And I think like, you know, my experience was always, you know, always working with military, you know, green uh, army people, you know, but there are definitely these differences. When I was working at AMC, the Army Material Command, there was these Army Material Command um, civilians that were like one step out of like uh, the Walking Dead, you know, just like, just, I, they were I was yeah. like, I was like, it was like watching a far side cartoon in real life. Like those kind of far side, you know, characters, this kind of, I mean, but in their defense, I don't think I had the best, the best, uh, it wasn't their A team that I was dealing with because these are people that working, you know, at night, um, you know, in the, uh, in a crisis action center, that's like, the, you know, if you're working some directorate, you're like, you know, somebody's got to staff this at midnight and, if something happens, you're going to call the person who's a program manager that, you know, can tie their shoes, you know, um, but, you know, but don't wake me up unless there's a real problem. So, but uh, I think that there are these very distinct cultures that exist across DOD, right? So you've got the Air Force and the Navy and Army and, and Coast Guard and Marine Corps. And, and when you get more and more senior, I wonder how that, I wonder how that kind of like 
manifests itself in the way that decisions are made, who gets to be put in charge of what. You know, when something happens like coronavirus or Hurricane Katrina or whatever, you're dealing with FEMA, you're dealing with Coast Guard, like there seems to be like there's a whole bunch of like this really interesting wrestling for who's in control, who's, you know, who's kind of driving the train, who has responsibility for what thing, where like identifying where the overlapping areas are, like doesn't ever get done. Yeah, you, you know, you just don't see that stuff. And then, you know, so I think that's yeah. fascinating. I would love to hear that's it. I love to it's hear some of our other classmates who've seen that. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation about the emergency management. Like one of the jokes I tell myself and uh, is that, yeah, I've been part of three startups, right, since I retired from the Army. Well, one of those startups was Army North, right? It was my, it was actually my last job in the Army, and it was post-Katrina, and the federal government was embarrassed by uh, how they handled Katrina, like a pickup game. Like, oh, there's three colonels doing nothing over there, and a battalion of infantry up in Fort Lewis, let's put them together and make them, you know, make them fix uh, New Orleans, right? So the Department of Defense did a pretty good job, but it took too long to get it together, right? The 82nd finally got down to Katrina and really made some good things happen. But they decided that that this is too important to, to do it as a pickup game. So Army North was formed uh, here at Fort Sam, and I was I was rotating back from Germany as a senior major and I was into the three shop. And so we were figuring it out as we went um, how to do this defense support of civil authorities. And you really had to study, um, you know, what happened in the Detroit riots, what happened in the LA riots, what happened, uh, what happens during wildfires and to see what are the, the title 32 versus, um, you know, like working with Indian nations, they're, they're different nations. Uh, you, you don't, you just don't go in there and do what you want to do. Um, so it was interesting. So I, I, I did that for three years at, uh, and that was a lot of fun because uh, before that it was, you know, everything's over in Iraq and the fight is overseas. And this was a chance to actually team up with the national guard and help your fellow citizens. Um, and so it was a, it was a, it was a fun, uh, it was a fun last gig. Um, just before I got out, but defensive. Did you ever study versus... anything about this guy, uh, General Russ Honore? Do you know who that guy was? You're stuck on stupid. That's his famous quote. Have you ever <laughs> seen that clip? That, I haven't seen great. it. No, but I actually had a conversation with um, General Dennis Reimer recently. He was helping to guide some of us in um, executive leadership team, whatever. And he talked about what a stud that guy was and what a unique person he was because not only did he have a career in the military, he was from Louisiana. He spoke right. Louisiana and, you know, he knew how, right. like he got off there with it and just, and was just like, a, was, was able to like, like getting this issue about like culture. He was able to, he was able to have that sort of culture from, you know, having been from there. And they said, this is one of our own who's actually in charge of this. That was really made a difference, I think. Right. Mm, yeah. Uh, the clip is great because he's talking to the media and he's like, look, don't ask questions about who's to blame for last week or, or a year ago. Your responsibility as the media is to inform the citizens on what they need to do now to prepare. OK, so don't ask these past tense questions. And then the next question goes, uh, who is to blame for whatever? And he goes, you are stuck on stupid. And it was the coolest thing, because when we were in I mean, that was when we were in Army North, that was like our favorite little mantra, you know, hey, don't be stuck on stupid. 
but it was great to see a three-star talk like that, you know, like in their face, shutting them down, um, being a, you know, a real, a real street smart kind of guy. That was good. Good stuff. And that was, and that was also, I think that was, you know, you needed somebody that could kind of assimilate with that culture or like and people respect it apparently because, you know, mm-hmm. they were in that, in that scenario. So fascinating. And I'm sure there's obviously there's, there's huge implications today, you know, with coronavirus and how we're dealing with this as a nation. And you clearly, we've got classmates all over the place in all different kinds of roles. I mean, that's one kind of thing that I feel good about is that, you know, I know that there are people like you working in, in DOD and people working, you know, in the army and people working in medical facilities. I just read an article today about Dr. Rick Burney's running some big clinic in uh, Madigan uh, in, uh, um, at Fort Lewis McCord and, um, you know, like on the cutting edge and Brad Woods and Moni Washington and all of our other classmates that are, that are working in this is just you're so grateful that we've got people that are well-trained and good thinkers and love America and trying to, you know, lead our country. Mm-hmm. So it's, Dan, it's, let's, uh, um, well, go ahead. You're about to say something. No, I'll, I'll, I'll transition with you. I was just, uh, I, I was going to echo the same, same thought you had. I've had it. So let's, let's jump all the way back to the very beginning, 1984, is your prior service. So you, you graduated from high school, what year? 80, 85, 84, 85. 85. And from uh, good old Rhode Island, huh? Are you, are you a, um, you a Patriots fan? Yeah, it's an interesting story. As a kid, I was a Cowboys fan, right? Because I think when you're 10 years old, you, you you form your allegiance to your sport team. And it was the Cowboys versus the Steelers back then. And I became a Staubach fan. So I stayed with the Cowboys until they started to suck. And then the Patriots started to be great. And I had this feeling of like, hey, I'm, I'm in the military. I'm all over the place. I need a little taste of home. And oh, by the way, Brady showed up. So I, I became a turncoat Patriot fan. But I used to be a so I'm flip-flopper, right? Now I live in Texas and I, I'm a Patriots fan. And when I lived in Rhode Island, I was a Cowboys fan. It's a little strange. Yeah, it's a great little town. Um, it's, it's more military than people think. We had uh, two Navy bases there. And I grew up in the traffic pattern of uh, Charleston Naval Air Station. Um, if, if you saw the movie Midway, uh, that dive bomber, skill where you just point your plane at a 70 degree bank to angle down toward a moving ship. They trained that um, out of that Charleston air base right near my house. So there's a lot of like, you know, wrecked planes and things like in that area where my uh, grandparents had a farm, all kinds of stories of planes going down and doing different things. And so it was a good, it was a good culture, good aviation culture for me. That's where I really got the bug for me to get into aviation. Um, was uh, my grandfather was a pilot, and uh, and it, it was just like I said, it was all around. So by the time I was in high school, um, you know, the recruiters are calling, and I answer the phone, and it's like, "Hey, kid, what do you want to do? Oh, I want to be a pilot. Hey, you know, the best way to do that is to enlist as a helicopter mechanic. They make the best pilots. Oh, okay, where do I sign?" I mean, that was really easy to get, right? So about 10 of us or 12 of us from my high school class got uh, signed up by the recruiters, but only like me 
I was the only one who actually shipped out because everybody figured out that it wasn't a real contract. You could get out of it. You didn't have to go. They weren't going to force you to go because it was bad publicity. So that kind of thing went around New England where, you know, the kids who did get hooked by the recruiters, there was always an aunt or an uncle or a mom or grandmother going, you know, no, you need to go to college. Um, which which quote, I think, you know, this is an interesting sort of like also a commentary on the country as a whole, because, you know, the Northeast, I'm from the Northeast area, you're from New England area, you see less ordinarily what would have been a college bound kid, you see less of these kids enlisting than say like, you know, in Texas or the Midwest or even in the South, you know, like, um, I, I, in fact, speaking of like recruiter stories, I had this kid, oh my God, he was so smart, but so dumb, right? He was valedictorian of his class, valedictorian, right? And somehow he thought, because I was an engineer officer, somehow he thought that this is a way to become an engineer. Some, the, the recruiter lied to him and said, if you want to become an engineer, you should be a 12 Bravo and you'll become an engineer. And so this kid was thinking he was going to go right into like engineering school and lo and behold, he's blowing shit up. And, uh, but he was, he probably ended up going to West Point or becoming, you know, he, I'm sure he went to like an amazing school because you could tell this kid was super smart, but just didn't have a lot of common sense. Also didn't have a lot of guidance. He grew up with his grandparents. I don't think his parents were in the store, were in the, you know, in, in, in the story so much, but he's a real smart kid. And, um, Anyway, so same story. You got lied to the recruiter and ended up getting in the army. You got lied to you. You also, you know, a bit the hook from a recruiter. Thought you were going to become a, a an aircraft mechanic and that was going to make you a pilot, right? It wasn't his. It wasn't a lie. It was his opinion. <laughs> but uh, no, I I actually liked it. It worked out that way. But you know, he didn't. Act, I could have gone to flight school from high school, but he had a quota, and off we went. So, so I ended up in basic training, and uh, I was in there with Patrick Burton. Um, I still have my uh, basic training photo framed up on my wall and he's in the top row and he's got his BCD glasses on. He never, I don't think he ever got an ass chew and I don't think he ever, uh, he never brought any attention to himself. He did everything like right down the middle. And, um, and then I vaguely knew that he, I didn't know he applied to the prep school until we got to the prep school about a year later. Oh, and by he the way, applied there before, he applied there wait before he before he went to basic with you or you're saying he was he applied there while you were no, at in, basic in yeah in basic training during the Reagan era buildup right they were um they were actively growing the military so they needed to look at ways to find more more talent so they they pulled aside everybody out of our basic training company of 300 people who had ASVAB scores above maybe 95 or something like that. And there was about 12 of us. Um, and so the drill sergeants brought us into their office and lined us up and they proceeded to like, you know, Jones, you need to go back to Iowa and just grow corn because you're not going to lead my soldiers and my men. And, and then he ran out the door and probably never replied. But they were doing a little bit of like, you know, strong arming um, drill sergeant technique. They got to me and I had a reputation of being a, a mafia, a mafia guy from Boston. It's a funny story on how that came about. And, but they, they got to me and they said, all right, you'll, you'll, you'll work Clark. And then they go to the next guy and they yelled at him. And the next guy said, yeah, they didn't you're give good. you any shit at all. They didn't give you any no, shit they, at all. Huh? They didn't give me any shit. No. And I, I guess uh, I earned my medal in that um, 
it's a funny story, but basic training, I'm in the, it's BRM. We had two weeks of rifle marksmanship. The first day out there, I shoot at the next guy's target. I get my ass rehanded to me and what are they going to do? Oh, we're going to kick you out of basic training and you're going to have to start over, right? Same story. So now I'm all hyper alert. And uh, the next day I'm on the range and, and I'm like, I'm picking my head up to look around. And then the drill sergeant hits me in the head with his cleaning rod. It's like, you're going to do that in combat. You're going to get shot. Oh, that's a good point. Learning has occurred here. So, so now I was just so like, I had a fear of the drill sergeants in me and it was June, uh, Fort Leonard, Missouri. I'm laying in rocks. I am not moving. I'm not wiggling. I'm not picking up my head. I'm not bitching. And basically my elbows bled through because I just stayed in the prone. And then I wouldn't go sick call. I would just treat them myself and I would wrap napkins around them and tape them. And so I had this ungodly looking double amputee looking self bandaged elbows. And, and I never, and every, I would get right back down into the prone, do my thing. And uh, the, they never heard me complain about it. I didn't go whine into the drill sergeants, you know, and the, my peers thought I was a little bit psycho. Um, and I had the Boston accent and uh, the drill sergeants used to drop me for fun. They'd go, Hey, get down Clark. You know, what we want to hear. Oh, drill sergeant, private clock request permission to recover. And they would do it up and down, up and down. So it was kind of fun. They, uh, I, I guess I proved myself to them. They, 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 they passed me on and they put me through the application process. And here's a funny thing, right? I, ASVAB's in high school, junior year, senior year, same score. I take it in the middle of basic training. I get off of a hot range. I get to go into an air conditioned building. I get to have a cherry Coke. If you remember how popular cherry Coke was in 85 and I pop that cherry Coke and I'm in this nice building and I'm like, wow, I know all these vocabulary words. I know all this math. I raised my score by like 200 points. It was a fantastic little miracle and uh, helped me get into the, the point because otherwise I probably would have been, you know, a drill sergeant or something. But that was our story so, the base training. You but so did you know about West Point? I mean, that was not your plan going into the military. It was just your plan in the military was just like, this is something to do. It seemed like a natural progression after high school, which is unusual, as I was saying, for a kid from New England or a kid from the Northeast, not unusual for a kid from Texas or from Alabama. But, you know, for you to go straight right. out of high school, you don't see that very often. I had two mentors that had mentioned West Point. Uh, one was my ninth grade uh, algebra teacher and another one was a friend's mom. So, but, but my situation as a kid in a, you know, a factory town in New England with like all the, nothing really, no opportunities really there as I was just ready to get out of town. Um, I was, my mom raised two boys by herself, deadbeat dad, you know, never, never present or did anything for us. And, you know, so I was scrappy and picking up work from like sixth, seventh grade on a paper out here, working dishwasher there and whatnot. Um, and as soon as I could, I had this energy to just get out of there and go. And, and, and so the, the military was perfect for me. Uh, I was given Germany as a first assignment and uh, I was so excited about that. So by, by November of my 18th year, uh, I was in Germany, um, hopping on trains and trying to practice my head start German and uh, you know going to pubs and spending all my private, private first class paychecks on uh, beer and pubs so it was, it was a good little it was a good 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 experience uh to get 
and it was while I was in Germany that the application for the prep school came through. Um, so I got, you know, then I got over to the prep school, which reminds me back to your question about the prepsters and the alphabet. Um, Ralph Dethridge was another prepster, but he didn't make it after plebe year. But he was a D, Duncan, Dethridge, um, Clark, and who was the other prepster? Dorda. Wait, he didn't graduate with us? Dethridge? Wait a second. Yeah. Uh, no, wait, uh, not Dethridge. Wait a second. Oh, geez. The mag? No. no. Jeff Helms, send me a text, brother. Who is that? Who am I thinking of? Dethridge graduated with us. Yeah, I know. I know it's Dethridge. Um, oh, he, he was such a weirdo. He, uh, it is, I'm sorry that I'm missing his name right now. Um, but he had, all, he, had, he had all those little infantry theories that if you don't piss when you're on a road march, your body recycles the, the liquid and, and all that. He had some, he had some stories. Chuck Deschino. on the on the podcast. So pepper it into the comment feed here soon enough. Ralph Ralph Deschino. Okay. So that's who that's what the other prepster was. What's up, Scott? I should. I got to ride with he Scott. Was your on roommate. My, yeah, and he I was have your a picture roommate of his in, underwear. In, you, you said he was your roommate at, at at prep school too, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's was, obviously not. That's just a sign, right? You just get your roommate. There's, there's no like science to that. They're not going to be like, oh, well, here's a guy from Iowa, another guy from New England. Let's put them together. Just like, yeah. you know, this kid's just, just, just random, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and and right next door, I think across the hall was uh, Andy Clements, right? Who um, mm -hmm. passed away in '95. Um, and Andy was, Andy was one of the guys that we all leaned on because he was very sharp. He was uh, like he had done ROTC in high school and he he had that spirit of like wanting to help everybody all the time. I mean, he, he Andy was a great guy. So uh, the funny thing about Scott, I have a picture of him in his underwear. Actually, I can't find it, Scott. So you're off the hook. But um, I was kind of always I always had a camera on me and uh, I was always taking pictures uh, in strange places. So I, I do have classmates in uh, compromising positions, but, uh, it's all right. It's all good. What a blessing too, that you, like, I, I wish that I had more, more taking more pictures that we were passing around some pictures just the other day on our little, um, WhatsApp, uh, F1 WhatsApp feed. And they were from like the night before graduation and grad week and, you know, and spring breaks and like, there were very few pictures. I wish I had like now today with these iPhones and everything, you get a gazillion pictures. You get like every 10 minutes is a picture. But how smart of you, how smart of it, how smart were you to basically be thoughtful to be taking these pictures? They get that picture of Shannon Beebe, you know, getting ready to be on the drop zone in airborne school. That's just, that's just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess I had no, uh, some part of my brain didn't learn risk management, but, I think if you slap a camera around your chest, you're probably risking, uh, I don't know, bruise. getting kicked out of. Yeah, for sure. I don't you're know. Getting, you're but, definitely getting risking it. Getting kicked out of everyone's yeah. school and a first class board. Yeah. So it was. Uh, yeah, I got a few pictures of those guys on the drop zone, and then put them into a scrapbook. And so my scrapbook flows chronologically. I would write everybody's names down. So I, I kind of. I think every family has one of those shutterbugs. Uh, my aunt was that person. No family visit ever. It always had to have this performance of getting the photos. So everybody's probably got one of those those folks in their family. So 
Yeah, I would be out in CTLT out in the El Paso desert trying to learn what lieutenants do. But no, I'm trying to get these amazing photographs of uh, lightning in the desert at night, you know, trying to write film speed, apertures, f-stops, you know, and the, the daggum track I'm in is just bouncing and plodding along. Um, just funny stuff. Um, I, I was a lieutenant in Honduras, lent my video camera, because back then you would take the video camera and you had a port, you'd put your earplugs in from your headset. Well, if you plug that headset in and put it under your helmet, it would record air traffic control. It would record your conversations. Um, so I'm just a happy little lieutenant and I'm in charge of this little deployment in uh, uh, the uh, Aguan Valley of Honduras. And the Black Hawk crew takes my camera. They get they violate the 500 foot minimum altitude. They're down on the water and they're just yanking and banking. I get back a week or two later and I'm in the little hooch and there's a couple of the pilots sitting around and I'm editing this. And they see it, and 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 suddenly, you know, the 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 wolf pack warrant officers are going to take down the commission guys. Uh, an anonymous tip is dropped to the battalion commander and the battalion standard instructor pilot that you know, Lieutenant Clark was doing crazy stuff with his camera and his crew and and all that. No, actually, what happened was is they borrowed my camera and they did it. But I, I look, you just look guilty. If, if anything goes wrong on your, this is the era of the 90s, you know, the, the zero defect world. And, um, you know, if, if, if there's a incident that your battalion commander has to explain, then you're going to burn and he, if he doesn't get promoted, you know, it's just the end of the world. So that was um, Brigadier General Joe Smith was my battalion commander down there. And he went on to be a one star, but he told me I needed to find another line of work. <laughs> you know, when you're a like, lieutenant. Holy hell. Yeah, when I was a lieutenant, it's like, well, that's just, I'm just yeah. not off to a great start here. <laughs> that was kind of a scary time. I mean, you're right, because there are downsides in the military, and it's like one little one little mistake, one little blemish, you know, whether it's your fault or not. What, a guy who worked for me for 20 years, he's a, um, my chief operating officer, he's class of 94 grad. He um, had exercise-induced asthma. They're like, you're gonzo, see ya. You know, medical board, you're out. Because that's the way it was back then. Hmm. Any kind of any kind of thing. So, um, so anyway, we, so we're talking about going from. So was Pat Burton in Germany with you as well? No, mm-hmm. no, was, we had no any other any other classmates over there in Germany when you well, were when you were in E three. No, no, I was there only there for about a year and then and then rotated back. So how great but, was that being like eighteen years old living in Germany? I mean, that must have been just like, just great times. Uh, we, we, you know, like privates are prone to do, you get, you, you develop a rut. You know, we would go from our little town in Hanau, we're on Fliegerhorst, and we would go into Frankfurt because that's where all the fun was. So we just did Frankfurt, Frankfurt, Frankfurt. I took one trip to Nuremberg um, and took some photos and that was it. Um, but yeah, but uh, I went back as a major and uh, during the, my S, S3XO um, months there, or the couple of years I was there, I overlapped with uh, Jeff Helms and uh, Norm Litterini. So they both have to drink now. And that was a good time. We, we actually spent a- If your name thanks- is mentioned on this podcast, you have to drink. You have to drink. That's the rule. Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo. Yeah, we, we, act- should we-, say if, we should say hello to some of our friends who are on this call here. So Jim Nugent, you can drink. Troy Kelly, Alex Rogers, Scott Clemenson, <laughs> Mike Schultz, 
Who else did I see? I saw Nancy Green's on here. So um, you guys can all drink. Drink up. Yeah. Think of the mile. So, 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 so here you are. You're a high-speed prep, uh, prepster. You know how to shine your shoes. You've been to prep school, prior service. You got the you got the aviator wings on. I remember something. You had some kind of wings, some something with. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. And then uh, you show up. So when you show up at Beast Barracks and you have all like these scared, like recently graduated high school kids, do you look at them and be like, "Oh, you're you guys are so naive and so so immature, so like you know." So no, there's no. So there was really no time for judging. You, you, your 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 teamwork, your sense of teamwork. We'll all get through this together. Don't worry. This is just a game. You got to get them to start understanding that. That's sort of so. That was sort of the mode I was in. Um, you know, like um, my roommate was uh, Bob May. Um, he was a football player. Oh, I, I remember that guy. He was so yeah, funny. He was. He's a great guy. So I, 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 you know, there was all the time we would spend in the room was just like you know just just helping them uh, manage the, uh, it's the, I mean, I, I felt that in basic training. I know what it means to go from, you know, from being a hero to a zero uh, to being, you know, the study of your school to be in the dud here um, and, and not knowing anything, you know, but I, I remember what comforted me is that I, I, I kind of figured out in basic training, I'm going to get three hots and a cot. They, they got to let me go to sleep. They got to feed me. It's kind of been a rule book. They can threaten all they want, but I've noticed the trend here. We're always getting fed and we're always going to sleep. So I figured <laughs> West Point would be the same sort of way. But I tell you what, Beast Barracks, uh, I got, they starved me. Like they kept making me go do shit and get up and go. And I mean, I felt, I felt that little fuse. Like I was going to throw a plate if one more of these guys said, made me do something. It was like a couple lunches or meals in a row where I got like two pieces of ham out of the serving. You know, um, so it, yeah, I was, I felt a little, I felt some new stress uh, in Beast. You, you uh, know, Dave Baxter used to, Dave Baxter used to talk about the differences between being 22 and being 18. Like you think he was like a hundred, right? He's like, you know, you, you youngsters, but there is a very big difference between an 18 year old and a 22 year old having, you know, now I have my 20, my 21 year old son and my 17 year old son. There's a very big difference in terms of the maturity, in terms of their, their physical maturity. Um, mm. So when you have somebody who's yelling in your face, who is the exact same age as you, cause you're basically, you know, you, you were the equivalent of a cow, right. Or a firstie when you were a plebe, Right. So yeah. when they're getting in your grill, you think to yourself, like, just shut up. Like, just don't even, yeah, I got told smirk off more than once, and I'm sure my eyes rolled a time or two, especially when there was like, you could tell, always tell somebody who was trying to be tough. There were some, I mean, I had a few upperclassmen that just, they could just make your life miserable. Um, and I, I got picked up off my feet, six foot two, and, and I had an upperclassman take me around back behind a corner where nobody could see anything. And he, he was a prior service guy. He had to give me the prior service code. And uh, it's Dana Delisle, and he just he got he got my attention, but he was great because he was as loyal as the day is long as far as taking care of his plebes, um, and that, that was sort of the, the the right role model to have, right? The prior service code. What's the prior service code? There was like a code? you know teamwork. Well, I don't. I can't really synthesize it, but he's like you know, don't have an attitude. Don't think you know everything. 
help your classmates, right? That's sort of the code, you know, right. you're a little mature, don't be, don't be, you know, and, and so, all right, I got it. So, but he had to do that whole, you know, I think he just wanted to do that for fun. I never attempted that. My nephew, that tradition on. My nephew's a cow and he had, he was a Buckner squad leader last year. So these were, you know, obnoxious yearlings that were, you know, just recently got done with their plebe, you know, their plebe year. And so he has, he had one guy who was formerly an E5. So he was an E5 and then went in as a plebe. So now he's like now a yearling. So he's a year into West Point. And this guy is, he's jacking up the drivers at Buckner. Like the, you know, the, like the, the, um, <laughs> whatever the, you know, the, these spec fours or whatever they're driving, like, you know, from the 10th mountain division. And so this kid's a yearling and he's jacking up the driver for not putting the chalk box down or something like that. And my, my nephew was like, just back down. Like, you know, you don't need to, uh, you know, and this guy had his E5 rank, like inside of his hat or under his like, um, you know, so he would like flip it at the, at the, uh, at these E4s, you know, and just say, listen, I, you know, I'm not some, some idiot cadet. My, my, my nephew was trying to manage that whole process. It sounded like it was an interesting leadership challenge. Mm. Buckner was a great time. I, I think the funnest thing I did at Buckner was uh, with Clayton Lowe. We, uh, we signed out to a grid coordinate and there happens to be a grid coordinate where there was a fire tower. I don't know if you know of this place, but it was about a three or four mile hike from, and uh, we went out there and I had somehow smuggled in a, a little pint of 151. And we, we sat up on top of this bald rock next to this uh, fire observing observation tower. And we scratched into the rock a chessboard and we, we scrounged around for different rocks and we came up with chess pieces. And we sat there passing this little bottle back and forth, blind to the fact that a massive thunderstorm was rolling in. Um, and then when it did roll in, we were like three sheets and happy. I remember standing like the, the face of this rock was pretty steep and the wind hitting it. We were leaning into it. Um, and then we, then we saw some lightning and we go, by the time we saw lightning and the brain said, uh, danger, we need to go. We had just enough time to get off the face down about 50 feet or so. And, and the, the rains just came to, crashing down. All we had between us was uh, um, a one space blanket. And so me and Clayton Lowe found a crack in the side of a rock where we weren't getting pelted by the rain. We crawled in there, mano y mano, and covered ourselves with that and kind of slept it off um, and waited for the rain to stop. So we. Then we did some classic infantry. We, we walked our way back onto Buckner at four or so in the morning, four or five. I think we rolled in to find the first few people up doing their PT. But that was a, it was a Saturday thing. It wasn't, you know, we weren't doing anything crazy, but uh, that, was, that was a pretty fun story. It was a fun time to do things like that. Uh, I think I hitchhiked back into Highland Falls to get uh, the 151. Apparently at the time I was 21 already, so I think that was the case, but that's useful. That's useful to be 21 yeah. and to be a yearling or a plea or something. Was yeah. Clayton, was Clayton, was he, was he, a, was he a professor too? Yeah. Yeah. He was professor. You know, what's interesting that, I mean, he, that guy lives in England now, right? I mean, right. he'd be a yeah. great guy to have on. But when I hear him talk, he's got like this little like English accent now because he's been yeah. living there long enough. He's got like his, you know, he, he like, you know, he sounds like he's, you know, from, uh, from, from, you know, the UK. Not from Atlanta anymore. Not from Atlanta anymore. Yeah. 
So what are some other memories you had from West Point? And with the, uh, what was C1? What, what was your name? C1 what? The Chuckleheads or something? What was it? Oh, Crusaders. Crusaders. Okay. I think some people call us Chuckleheads, but. Yeah, so the, the 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 it's all changed now. That's a politically insens- insensitive uh, term. So no more crusaders. But That's I was in the color guard. Politically insensitive compared to be straight or be gone, which I don't think it ever meant anything like that was like anti-gay, but that or go cox or whatever the yeah. other ones were that they had. Yeah. Be straight or be gone has changed too. So uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Right around our reunion, two thousand sixteen. Um, I was up there in 14 and I walked walk by the old area and they had their rocks painted and there was a rock that said, be straight or be gone. And by the time two years later for our reunion, that rock was gone and they had a new motto. So it had changed over. So I did a year out of C1 in the color guard. And I think um, back in the 2016 reunion, I went back into the color guard, the flag room where we keep all the flags and everything. And the tradition that Randy Judd and I had started, um, we just signed our names on the wall. We started that our senior year and it's still carried on. I don't know that every year has ever done it, but every person in every team that's written, it's still on the wall. And so maybe in the 30 years that transpired, there may be 20 you know, years, 20 groups of people that had signed the wall. So that, I thought that was kind of neat. We have a little, little heritage there. And um, so you were the color guard as a cow, and then also mm-hmm. weren't you the color captain as a as a for a co lieutenant or something as a first team? You did right. it twice, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. Randy Randy Judd did it in the fall, and I did it in the spring. So that that was kind of rough. That 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 semester when you're about to graduate is like, you know, that's not the best time to be out of your company, you know, because everybody's just in high spirits and having a good time, and yeah, I was out of the company. So it was a little bit of a bummer. I lost a lot of the. I don't get all the jokes that these guys make when we get together because I, I miss some of that that cow year time and that first year time. And the way that, that I mean, you you semi-volunteered for it, but it also gets kind of like assigned to a company, like company to company to company. And I remember F1 got it. We were required to provide somebody. And you had to be over six foot tall and you had to have over 3-0, which put me out of the running. And um, you had to not be doing core squad athlete or something like that. And so it came down to only two people. It was Eddie Bayuth or Mark Potter. And Mark Potter find, found some way to get out of it and gets, and stuck Eddie Bayuth with it, who did not want to do it. Eddie Bayuth was just like, he wanted to be in the company. He didn't want, and he hated Mark Potter for that. He like, <laughs> see Mark Potter from, from like across the area. He'd be like, F you Potter, F you. <laughs> Yeah. Do you know Eddie Bayou? Uh yeah. Um uh, by by name and by face, but not I don't think I any classes, didn't do any assignments together. There's hardly a nicer guy. I mean, Norm Litterini is your company mate. And I think like when I think of like a nice guy, I think of Norm. Like Norm is like just like salt of the earth, right? Great person. That's the way Eddie Bayuth is too. He's just so he's such a mm-hmm. such a great person, such a great uh addition to uh to the long gray line but also so funny and uh he actually had an eight-year break in service got out eight-year break in service went back in and he's about to retire right now he's like coming up on he's got like 21 years now he's gonna retire soon was that a 9-11 thing or he just did he go back yeah in? he got out before 9-11 and then went back in like after 9-11 like yeah. uh but like i think he got out like 
I think he got out like in 98 and he went back in like 05 or 06. So it was like straddled those, those years. Hmm. So who are some other characters from uh, Company C1? Uh, we had a, a fella from Haiti, uh, Reggie Delva. And I, we, we called him Reggie Bad because uh, he, he, he could curl like 130 pounds straight, ripping arms. Um, he, he just got, you know, after we, we followed him, well, Norm does the following of anybody in our company. He just knows things. He knows people. So, but Reggie got, you know, caught up into the, the, high, the hierarchy of Haiti uh, and the military coups and you, you name it. I can't give it justice, but he was an interesting cat. And uh, Bubba Leck had, uh, he became Seaman. Um, he had, he, if you remember Seaman running around like in your old area, F1, E1, D1, he'd get up on that little, uh, the band would play and he'd be up on the roof up there. He'd up, he'd be up there dancing to bust a move and stuff. He had such crazy energy. He had some alternate personalities like Rick Bastion. Oh no, I'm not, uh, I'm not Bubba Leck. I'm Rick Bastion. He'd go talk to girls in the club. Hey, Rick Bastion. And it is just so much fun to be around, you know, but he, he was like, he had a lot of energy. Um, and uh, was just a blast. Uh, uh, Bob Dorda was uh, a prepster. He he loved to go hunt, and uh, I think while he was there, he never got anything right. And we would he would always bust his chops like Bob, the deer they're on the plane. You don't have to go hike way up into the deep woods of uh, West Point and spray yourself with deer piss and camouflage from head <laughs> to toe. The deer are on the plane. They're munching the grass. So we would, we would give him crap about that. Um, but I got to see him uh, when I took the bike down to Key West because he's sort of like the halfway point between where my aunt lives and the Key West ride. So I got to spend the, a night on the way in and a night on the way out. And that was, that was a good time to catch up because we hadn't seen each other for quite a while. Um, and so, yeah, in 2016, when I did that border-to-border -border, uh, motorcycle trick trek, uh, I got out to Palo Alto and it happened to be a confluence of C1 folks. Um, Daryl Dodge was there. He's in the reserves. I think he's still in as a Colonel. Um, he was there. So it was Jeff and Sharon Helms were there and Nat Rainey uh, lives there and, and he's working as an emergency management guy there. Um, and Chris Gailey uh, was doing HR for one of the um, Intel companies. Like he was with, um, TurboTax or into it for a little while. Um, so there was a lot of C1ers. Hold, hold on, just give me a perspective on timing though. This was like, this is outside of West Point, outside of the army. You were, you did a cross cross country trek on your motorcycle, right? Yeah. In 2016, I, I did, I spent 34 days on the bike. I went border to border, coast to coast. So I hit both oceans, both coasts, uh, Mexico and Canada. And on that route, I crossed I, I linked up with 10 classmates on, on that journey. So, wow. So the first one was miles total 10,094. So it's really crossing the country three times, basically over three times. So you did. Yeah. 10, cause I, I did it. I did it. You know, you're, I'm covering the top of Maine down to Texas and California. You have to, to service your, you have to service your bike along the way. I mean, I would imagine 10,000 miles, you change your tires, you got to change the oil, you got to change everything, right? What's your, well, I started off with brand new tires and oil and all that. And when I got to Rhode Island, um, I was at about the 6,000 mark. I needed a new water pump. And I was planning to take a week off the bike 
to hang out with family and friends there. And so I dropped the bike off with uh, the local repair shop. And But I made it the whole trip on one set of tires. That wasn't too bad. 10,000 miles when you're just going straight is not bad on, on a set of tires. But it was... It How was fast do you go? What's, what's, what's the typical, like, what's your... Is, like, this is a cruising bike. This isn't like a little, you know, like a crotch rocket. You're riding like a like a cruising bike, right? Yeah, the uh, Sport Tourer is the category, and it's uh, 1,600 cc so it's got some muscle and it could carry some weight so the bike itself is 850 my 220 230 with gear um yeah so you're about tipping in at a thousand pounds so but the the bike was very nimble once it got going from california crossing all that wide open spaces i mean it was not unseen to to comfortably hold 95 because i had a pretty good windscreen um i, I wasn't doing any you know, Moni Washington, uh, you know, 140s or 120s. Ball 50. Ball 50. <laughs> yeah. I think I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, that's because she can just basically lay down on the tank of the bike, all five foot two of her, whatever. But I'm a big wind right. target. You know, I, I'm up on that bike and it's like, it's work to hold on to that thing. But yeah, I, and I, uh, so it, it was so kind of interesting. How many hours a day? How many, how many hours a day are you on the bike? Uh, each day varied, but uh, I think the shortest day was 350 miles. Um, call that four hours, five hours. And the longest day was the, geez, a thousand. Like my first day out of the and shoot. And you said, so, um, I was saying it was because you had a plan. You had to get to see Scott Clemson for his 50th birthday. Right, right. And you had, yeah. you, you were behind, you were out behind plan, right? Yeah. So, I had to get out to California to for Memorial Day to see the Palo Alto crowd. And Scott's birthday is June 6th, right? So it's Memorial Day weekend, the 27th, 28th, 29th, right? And then I had to get down to see Dave Matheson in San Luis Obispo. When I got there, that was three days of hard driving. It was 1,000 miles the first night, 500 the second day, and 500 the third day. And I just said, I got to get off this bike. And so Dave let me stay an extra day with him. Even took me, we were, you know, an infantry guy and an aviation guy are in the back of a yoga class, cutting it up and farting and talking while the teacher's no, no, trying no, to instruct. No, this is a guy, so Dave Matheson, I, I, I know of him and I read his blog and we kind of knew each other a little bit at school, but this is a deep thinking guy. This is somebody who's like on a different level, right? He's like the way that he thinks and he writes and he, this is like, like, the dude is like deep, right? I I have always appreciated his writing and how articulate. He didn't waste words and he could frame an argument so efficiently. You know, that's, I've never been able to do that. I, I admire those brains that, that can do that, that can line it up in such a way that, you know, you can follow it and it makes sense and it's structured and logical. Like logic bounced off my brain like, water and oil something some things just don't stick in my brain languages you, you're like more the c spot run kind of like that's your <laughs> linguistics right yeah i'm all tactile you know like i want to <laughs> i'm not i'm not cerebral as much but so i, I so I, back to the scott story so i'm like i stayed an extra day with uh dave and it was a blast and um we went out to a vineyard and had some fun things uh, went to yoga class whatever but i had to catch up a whole day um, I had a plan to stay up on top of the Sierra Nevada in Yosemite, not Yosemite. Yeah. Yosemite. Is that Yosemite? 
or is it Yellowstone? It's Yosemite. It's Yosemite. So I had a right. I had a reservation at the campground on the top of the mountain, and I get to the gas station and I fill up and there's this bunch of bikers there, right? And I start the biker conversation. Well, their names are Clark. It's Dad Clark, his son, and his son's wife. They're on Triumphs. They ship their bikes from Vermont. And they're riding back, right? And it was a newlywed thing, father riding with new, it's a cool story. And I like, oh, can I ride with you? So I got in trail position. I had my GoPro right on my helmet here and I filmed them. And the dad let me stay right on his back tire so that I could get a good shot of it. But I blasted right past my campsite. And it was 46 miles of the best mountain riding I have ever done. And they were linked, their helmets were all linked so they could talk. So the first person would pass a car and, and give the all clear. So I didn't have to really think it. I just had to stay on the back tire of the guy in front of me. So if he passed somebody, I just passed, which was kind of fun. We just could, we could put our bikes to the, anyway, I get up on the other side of the mountain. Now I'm staring at nothing, Nevada. I have no place to go, no campground. I'm not going back because I got to catch up with Scott. So I just turned the bike North toward Lake Tahoe and I'm chasing the sun and I go, I am bound to find a campground somewhere along some river. And sure enough, I did. Pulled in, paid my fee, set up my hammock, bonked out and uh, got up. And it was down to like 40 degrees what the a next life. morning. Got a, yeah. What a life this sounds like to me doing this. This is this is pretty pretty awesome. Yeah. And so I I, uh, I, I, I hustled as much as I could. I, I would, I'd start early, go late. And I nearly ran out of gas uh, in Nevada because I got caught chasing. I got caught staring at the sunset. It's something I, I'm into the photography moment. And and when the sun is setting on the spring desert, things are there's a lot of purples and pastels popping. And and I was, you know, no handing the bike, grabbing my phone, getting video, and doing things like that, and not paying attention to my gas or where my gas station was. The, let me give you some context. So I was doing an iron butt ride, tracing a route from San Francisco to New York City. There were there was 134 stops that I was attempting to pass by. And these this was the route of the first motorcyclist to cross the country in 1903. So I was doing a sanctioned iron butt ride. I had to get witnesses, I had documentation, I had to get to these little spots where this biker got his gas, his food, or his maintenance. And I had to take a, a recording with my GPS and I had to write down the mileage on my bike and where I was, right? So I'm plotting it's like along. A I'm, it's like geocaching, right? You have, you have the proof yeah, that you're yeah. there, right? Right. And so I'm, I'm all caught up in getting to the next waypoint and I'm looking at all the beautiful nature and the sun is setting and I'm not really paying much attention to gas. Um, I, on my GPS, I smashed, yeah, take me to the next gas station, right? So I just, I get to the, the next waypoint it turns out I was going against the grain. It told me, the bike told me I had 45 miles left of gas. It said the gas station's in 20 miles, but I went this way and the gas station was 20 miles the other way. By the time I got to the stopping point, I had a, I had a gap to cover of about 60 miles and I had about 15 miles left of gas. So I put my reserve can in, I had a liter of gas on the bike, put it in. And uh, I mean, I'm I, now it's like, I had to like maximize that fuel. So I was driving at 45, 40 miles an hour, sixth gear, pitch black, dark, middle of nowhere. I'm in the, I'm part of the food chain now. Uh, you know, if I get a flat tire or hit a, hit a porcupine, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a survival situation, but I get on the interstate and I'm 40, 40 miles an hour, 
blinkers on, six gear. Long of the short, I get to the Utah um, Nevada border and I had six, the, the, the computer told me I had six miles to go. Well, that whole debacle ate up like two hours of my night and I still had 180 miles to go at 11 p.m. to get to Salt Lake City. To get the Scots, oh no. No, I'm working my way there, working my way, but I had to get to my lodging at Salt Lake City at Luke Air Force Base. At 11 o'clock to have 180 miles to go is a long clip. And I just put the high beams on and tired eyes. I just did like a, you know, buck 10 the whole way there. That's but I, I got suck. to. I mean, I hate driving when I'm tired. And there's times I, I like, I've had to do it at certain times. And I remember this one guy, our, um, my econ P, Colonel Olvey, taught me this. And he's so right. And this is great advice if you get nothing from this podcast. If you're ever tired and you got to get from point A to point B and you, you cannot fall asleep, put a piece of ice under your tongue. Stop off at like a little convenience store, get a whole, you know, um, a whole cup of ice and just put one piece of ice after the other under your tongue. You cannot fall asleep with a piece of ice under your tongue. It's better than coffee. It's better than, you know, dip in. It's better than whatever. It, I mean, this will keep you awake. If, if you've never tried that, but that's got to suck on a motorcycle. I mean, yeah. having to do that. And, you know, my, um, I, I didn't, I had these really bright uh, headlights, you know, LED lights on the bike for safety in the city. They're great. But when you're in the country of like Nevada, Wyoming, and the the only people on the roads are the semis, they were really kind of flipped off, pissed off that I was just blinding everybody and I didn't know how to set the rheostat. You can control how bright they are. I didn't know how to do it at the time. So I was getting flipped off by all these truckers, but I finally got there and I, I, I pulled into Scott's house. Um, and I don't remember what day it was, but I remember just parking in front of his house. He wasn't home and I laid on his lawn, just kind of wiped out, you know, but uh, we made it. And uh, he, he, he introduced me to a couple of great products. One was this uh, bug cleaner. And oh my God, were the bugs crazy in Iowa? I mean, it was disgusting how many bugs were all over my bike. But he had some super cool cleaner that we got all that grime off. And then there's some crazy potato chips that he gave me a bag of that were amazing. They're like, they, they felt like they were buttered. And, uh, but they, those are my two big memories from, um, from Iowa. And the we went to the motorcycle uh, museum that they have there. Uh, like, um, Oh, Easy Riders Motorcycle is in that museum. Um, uh, Dennis, not Dennis McQuaid. Um, I don't know. Some of those big name actors of the 70s, uh, they got their bikes in there. So it was, it was a good trip. Good. I made it on time, actually, as I made it on time. I made up the time, which is pretty good. But I... Uh, so speaking of, of all, time, speaking of time, yeah, we are an are we hour doing? and eight minutes in to, we already had 10 minutes to start because we, because of the, of our aborted attempt. So at the time, I told you time was going to fly by so, so quickly. It's amazing. Yeah. How yeah. Quick. So we, so we talked about the here and now we talked about pre West point. We talked a little bit about West point. We talked a lot about the, uh, the, uh, the bike trip. Um, let's talk a little bit about the army, right? Cause I think that, that, that you have a, a 20 year career, incredibly formative experience. Um, you said you think you are our first classmate to retire. Probably you think probably yeah. because you retired at, uh, well, it was probably 18 years after West point, you, you right at the yeah. 20 year mark, you retired. 
uh, January of 2010, which is where I was out. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's just shy of the 20 from 91. And, um, so I had two and a half years for my enlisted time. So a little over 20, but yeah, so I, I ended up in flight school after OBC, I mean, as OBC and, uh, you know, back then the army was like, you know, you, you were a modernized pilot or you were a non-modernized pilot. I ended up in a Huey. And so I had to go where the Huey jobs were. So, and of course my, my decision-making on where I wanted to go was always about travel. I always wanted to go overseas. So my first assignment was the Panama Canal. Um, and, and that was pretty good. And then from there, I went up to Honduras. So I did a year in, in both places and that was great flying. It was a great place to learn um, Honduras more so than Panama, um, just cause it's rugged and, you know, and, and, and beautiful country. And, and when you got up on the coast, you know, you could get a surf and turf dinner for $6. Um, and it was the best, I, to this day, the best coffee I've ever had was the coffee from the hotel where the coffee was grown in that valley over there and the sugar was made in that valley over there and the goat's milk came from that little goat over there. All together was the most delicious coffee I've ever experienced. So after, after Honduras, it was back to Rucker. And I think this was the first time I had some overlap with some classmates. Uh, Sean Prickett was there. And so we, we popped out our babies at the same time. Uh, we have little Alabama citizens in our homes. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the jobs that I liked there was I, I got to teach OBC. And uh, this was a sort of a, a learning curve. When you, when you first begin to realize you don't know enough yet, um, you, you leave West Point a little bit cocky and headstrong. Oh yeah, I did this and I'm so badass. I got my little aerosol badge. Yep, yep, okay. And and then I'm teaching leadership. Where did you do? Where did you go to aerosol school? Um, at Rucker. At Rucker, Rucker. Okay. Yeah. You're, so you're, you're, you're not a Gruber, not a Gruber grad. The crazy I, I, Gruber stories. No, I have a Gruber experience, but I'm not a Gruber grad. If you know what I mean. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but that's a, that was the first time where I'm like, oh my god, I'm teaching leadership. What do I know about leadership? I just came. I just had two one year assignments. What do I know about leadership? I just been out. I just been out of West Point two years, three years, and now I'm teaching all these lieutenants from a whole year group about leadership, right? So I was sort of like, you better start studying, you know. Um, and uh, and and it was also at that time when you did the advanced course, and the advanced course they have a way of making you study Civil War, and uh, I I came out of that a, a diehard Abraham Lincoln fan. And, and, and to better understand Lincoln, you had to keep studying backwards to the founding fathers. But that's sort of what I went through in that 18 months of teaching these lieutenants leadership. And it was interesting to see a whole year group come through because in the month of May, you get these, um, you get the honor graduates coming out of the universities like Norwich and Citadel and other places where they, these, these people are like sharp, very sharp. Contrast that the month before April, you're getting like the last of the national, the last people who were on the bottom of the OML of the National Guard organizations that finally had somebody to send, right? You're getting a, a bunch, the, 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 the contrast between April to May was stark. And I was very excited about getting the West Point class in 96 to come in, right? And, um, and this is where my story with uh, Steve Yost comes in. Right. So I, I get I get this class in and I had three knuckleheads on the first day were late, unshaven and whatever. They got written up. One of those three knuckleheads just continued to be a knucklehead. 
and, and not show up on time, not wear the right uniform, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I thought it was my duty as a tack to write them up, write them up, write them up. So uh, anyway, I, they had every, we, we could put 30 people in a class, a flight school class, but the West Point class showed up like something like 180 strong. And so you, you know, you do the math, you got 30 starting here. Well, 180, 150 are starting in later and later and later. So some people had to go 90 days, 120 days before they could start uh, the flight training. And we would farm them out to different organizations. So Steve Yost was across the post and he got this guy, this, this kid who had been writing up. Snow, snowbirding. Snow, there you go. Yeah, that's exactly or what blackbirding. it was. Yeah. No, snow, snowbirding is before, blackbirding is after, right? Yeah, I think that's the case. Yeah, that's some so. of the best assignments. I was I blackbirded after um, after OBC before Ranger School. We had like a like a ten day little you know break or whatever it was. That was a great time. That was yeah. a great time. There's like no responsibility. Yeah, it was good. And uh, so Steve ended up with this guy. And this guy would play mom against dad, right? He'd, he'd tell Steve that, you know, uh, Captain Clark gave me a pass. And Steve would be like, oh, okay, see you on Tuesday. And the kid would take off. Well, one time Meanwhile, he did he didn't realize that you two are classmates. You're talking to each other like, hey, yeah. he, you know, like, how smart, how, how smart could this guy be that he's not going to, you know, realize that? Yeah, yeah. Anyway. He ended up uh, going AWOL that weekend, and uh, and Steve called me up and said, "Hey, did you give him a pass?" I'm like, "Give him a pass? You kidding me? No way!" And uh, and so that started a my first experience with really the um, the ugly side of what can be the ugly side of leadership and paperwork, and because I got accused of being racist and uh, and and all of this, you know, like what saved my bacon was the fact that every time I inter- every time I wrote somebody up, I had another student in there with me to be my witness. So all of those witnesses added up to like, no, this, this guy's just doing his job. He's not out to get anybody, but they would ask me questions like, Hey, how is it that this guy can get through West Point, but he can't get through your tough program? You know, it, there are these Fulberg colonels are asking me questions like that. And it was like getting me pissed off and you know, I'm talking into somebody's microphone on all of these Article 32 requests for redress hearings because uh, we were processing this kid out of flight school and he was fighting back. And uh, but, you know, he ultimately got got kicked out. But that was uh, that was that was Steve and I's little shared agony, you might say. But mm-hmm. I always admire Steve. He was on a crew team um, and. Just a, just the kind of personality that I wish uh, had befallen me is that just confident, strong, kind guy. Um, and would and give quiet. you the shirt off his back. Yeah, quiet. And, yeah, and quiet. Just like a just a solid, solid citizen. Yeah. Yeah, he was a good guy. So oh, that was flight school. And uh from there I I I blasted off to Egypt, um, which was a, a pretty fun flying job to be uh, doing peacekeeping stuff in the Sinai Peninsula. Um, got to hang out in uh, Tel Aviv and see the Jerusalem a couple times. And, and after, uh, after that gig, the army put me in recruiting, which I thought was, you know, like, oh, they hate me. They're kicking me out. What did I do to deserve this? This is horrible. But the, the fun part was I got to go back to Rhode Island to be the recruiter. I was in charge of all the recruiting in Rhode Island and uh, Cape Cod area. So uh, I, my job was to drive around to high schools and chat it up with principals and 
try to get, you know, support programs to get kids in the army. So it was kind of fun. I enjoyed doing that. I looked up, I looked up my deadbeat dad one day. I drive out there with my government license plate car in my uniform. I knew where he lived out in the farm and I pull in, right? And there's a barn on the right. And I don't know that he's in the barn, but he's in the barn. And I pull up to the front and I go to the door. He don't know me from Adam. I'm looking like a government. I'm banging on the door, nothing there. And then finally I see the door open, you know, and I walk up and I, I introduce myself. So I, and we, I sat in his barn for a little bit, had a beer with him. Um, and then uh, he, he took me over into his real house. This other house was not the house and proceeded to show me some junk that he had from when he was in the Air Force. So he gave me a set of World War II trench knife that he had gotten in France in the, in the 50s when he was over there. And, uh, and that was that. That was like a, a cold call visit that didn't turn into me getting shot, you know, or chased off or anything. Um, well, hold on. Hold on. This is fascinating. <laughs> we didn't talk about this at all in the pre-call. I'm riveted by this conference. So he, you hadn't talked to him, you hadn't seen him, didn't know your dad, and you went and just knocked on his door, cold called him in uniform while you're in, in recruiting command, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty much how it how it worked. Yeah, I'd seen him wow. once before, about five years earlier. Um, so there was a chance he could have recognized me and and on all that, but. There was no pre-call, no phone call, no, hey, I'm coming. I was just in between schools down in that, that, that county and decided to go, you know, on a, on a whim, go do a cold call and knock on the door. So it wow. turned out all right. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. So, like, what did you say to him? Like, hey, listen, I'm, I'm your son. I haven't seen you. I've only seen you once in however many years. I'm like, like I, I'm, I'm, my, I, I'm at a loss for words, which is big for me. Well, like, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I steer clear of all the Dr. Phil shit and, and I'm not going to put anybody in that sort of position. Like you abandoned me, you know, none of that, none of that noise, you know, it's just like, Hey, how you doing? Just let, you know, I'm in, I, I'm in the state, I'm in the army, you thought you might, you were in the air force. So, you know, um, I'm Aline's youngest and here's what I'm up to. I got two kids. Uh, saw you five years ago. How you doing? What's going on? Can I join you for a beer? So we sat in his uh, little, little, um, he had a wood burning stove, a lazy boy chair, a cooler and a TV inside the barn next to the tractor. It was the coolest like man cave you could ever want to have, you know? And so we just hung out there. And uh, I so think. I, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was say one one beer in, uh, and I think the edge is off on on that sort of edgy type of thing, you know. So, yeah, no, no. no I know it was you and your brother growing up, right? You you and your brother. Yeah. Yeah. And so was with both you. He is your brother's father as well. As far as I know, yeah, I think so. Okay. But uh, I think we ought to try to get some DNA testing done. That'd be interesting because. He went to jail when I was one because he shot up the house with a shotgun in, in December, went around and blew out all the windows, ended up in jail for that, that antic. And I, maybe I was two-ish. I, I want to say, and maybe neuroscientists will say this is not accurate, but I want to say that's the first memory I have because I remember some elderly man sheltering me and I remember blood on his face and gray hair. And it was probably from broken glass and, and um, buckshot. Um, but I, I have a memory of that. Where did it come from? I don't know. But, and how old was I? I'm told I was one. 
people say you don't have memories when you're one, but um, I had that memory. And I, you know, I don't know if it was given to me, but I think it, I don't think it was given to me. I think I have it. Um, so anyway, yeah. So he, so what? So I'll go back to the like, is it Luke? I'm your father type of story. Um, some people say my brother and I don't quite look alike. And uh, what would cause a man to start shooting up his house? Like so, that's uh, and this is so I don't know. If my brother and I ever decide to go get a DNA test, maybe we'll know. But um, don't you said really there care. was blood. Did somebody get shot when he was shooting up the house? Well, uh, if we were under a window, you know, taking shelter from a window and buckshot comes through, glass falls, I think that the guy protecting me was, uh, got some buckshot or glass on the forehead, you know, that's well, who all was the guy I remember. protecting you? I don't know. I don't know. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, it, I, didn't, I didn't get those debriefings from my mother. Like, we, just, we don't, we're not going to talk about that one, you know. So, so it's a so weird your one. Your mom, your your mom passed away young, right? She was only yeah. like, so. Well, at this point that you met this this man, your father, she was gone, right? She was was she already? Has she already passed away? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. She passed in two thousand, and this cold call was like oh one oh two something like that. Yeah. So did, did you stay in touch with him at all or like, you know, his wife is like um, the, the she, his wife would pump out the Christmas cards, right? She was that sort of personality. She's the nest builder, the family. Uh, he was just a little quiet farmer who wanted to not be left alone. So he, he wouldn't turn down a visit, but you know, um, and he, he wasn't really going to make the list of people I'm going to visit when I'm on vacation. Right. You know what I mean? So, um, but, uh, the fun thing is, is that my brother made friends with, um, his other two kids, uh, maybe five, six, seven years ago. So, so I have a half brother, half sister up in Rhode Island and they still run the family farm. And, uh, and we generally, my brother has been going up every Memorial day for the last couple of years. And my half brother, his name's Aaron, he puts on a pig roast. So I was hoping to get up there this, uh, coming this month, but, those plants got uh, deleted. Thank you, COVID-19. Mm. But yeah, I've yet to kind of befriend them, but I certainly want to. I'm, I'm friends with them on Facebook. I know what they're about. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting to my first pig roast up there with them. And he looks exactly like me, my half-brother Aaron. We are both this tall, thin, French-looking kind of thing. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was good. My brother had a little more of that baggage, you know, um, he knew his dad, he was like three or four when it all broke apart. So he had that, that hole or that gap. Um, I think I, I just went through life filling that gap, the father gap by having a sort of a radar where I borrowed my friend's dads. Um, my, right. my, my, my good buddy in high school, his dad was from Germany and they were always taking hikes in the summer and I would find my way on those trips with them. And, and, uh, you know, they would ski Tuckerman's Ravine up in New Hampshire, and I would carry his dad's skis, you know, and, and my, my return for that would be a little airplane bottle of uh, brandy and a beer. <laughs> so I had some good times, you know, age 15, 16, 17, playing the pack mule for my friend's dad and whatnot. I was very, I had a very strong radar for that role model need that's uh, always been, always been present, right? So. I, 
I guess, it, I don't know, I guess it's a gap. And if you don't have a dad, you have some sort of need or radar to, to, to zero in on uh, good role models, right? To figure out how you should become a man, how you should be, what kind of role model you should be, that sort of thing. Yeah, it takes a village. You always find you find you find people to look up to. Hopefully, they're the right kind of people to look up to, and and you yeah, know, yeah, just kind of drive on. Yeah. Um. We, so we were talking before about about the army and the zero defect army, and the fact is that you know, especially in the in the '90s, you you had to be almost blemish free, right? Like you know, you could basically uh, you had you had a you had a brush with negativity with uh, with that with that um, with the camera recording, you know, going too low and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah. you know, what are your perspectives, you know, today kind of looking back in, in terms of um, how that manifests itself in terms of leadership, in terms of people's careers and in terms of your own career? There's one dynamic that I, I wish I had adopted earlier. And that's the, that's the dynamic of power um, and not, well, I don't want to say principle. We always have to have principle, but, we often, I, I, I maintained a, a pie in the sky view of, you know, the, the high moral, the West Point calling to, to serve country. Um, and, but I didn't really understand that there's people, there's officers who are just very competitive and they're going to get the next promotion and you better support them and that whole thing. Um, like, so the one running I had in Iraq with my boss and he was a 81 grad. Um, I just thought I was doing my job, right? I, I, I was questioning where the division commander's staff were parking their three Blackhawks because they took some mortar rounds real close. But what I didn't understand was that this, this argument was fought and lost six months earlier by my predecessor who I followed. And I didn't know this. And I just start, I just start this new can of worms. And I don't understand the dynamic that the two-star is going to get pissed off at my 06 because he's got a major who's trying to look after his aircraft, right? It was my first ass chewing, um, real good ass chewing, you know, like he's, he's using all the, all the right four letter words. And I, I didn't, I didn't turn into Mr. Plebe and lock myself up because I was like, it felt incredulous. Why am I getting an ass chewing for just doing something that's like, this is a, this should have been a mentorship moment. Why aren't you, why aren't you, taking a moment to explain the dynamic of what's going on. Why are you giving me an ass chewing and, and, you know, cussing me out and telling me to shut up and you don't care what I think and all that. Right. This is from a West pointer. He went on to be a BG, but uh, I didn't get it. I totally didn't get it. And it was my former battle buddy who finally debriefed me on that whole dynamic. Right. I was, this is probably an example of what that, that dynamic was about the zero defect is that, you know, he's going to, have a perfect record and you're not going to fuck it up and you're not going to stir up anything and like just do what you're told or I don't quite know the dynamic but that's one example I think that where it where it raised its head um just weird I didn't understand that 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 power dynamic you know I'm all about like the, the mission and the principle and you know what we were taught in school and whatnot so um but uh yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, and, that's one of the huge differences that I see between civilian life leaders and military leaders. Civilian life leaders are more apt to talk about their own mistakes and their own failures, almost like a badge of honor. Like they will talk, they will give you the straight up, 
here's how I F this up. Here's the mistakes that I made. I wish I could redo that. I wish I could have a do over on this thing. If I, if only I had done that, whereas in the military, and a lot of it's because the stakes are so high because, you know, honestly, if you make mistakes, sometimes people die. Right. So you, like, that's mm. a very painful situation. But on top of that, because it's so competitive and because it's such a zero defect perspective, you make a mistake like that, or you do something that's like sort of outside the ordinary and your career is limited in terms of what you can do now, you know? And so like, you can't, you can't, uh, you know, there is no, uh, resurrecting yourself from bankruptcy or something in the military because, you know, it's, mm. you get one shot at, at, at perfection. Yeah, I think uh, I think also looking back at it, um, like I, I had I'd come out of Iraq and and that tour that tour of duty as a major where we had the mindset going in that we, when you did your branch qualifying job, you know, which was company command as a captain or it's company command or XO or S3 and you don't get your top lock that your career's over. Right. And that's just such a dumb. That's that's something that was was stamped into me and I think a lot of others from the 90s that it was a all or nothing moment like you had to go to resident CGSE or you're done or you had to get this thing or you're done there's just so many ways you can still serve and lead uh, that it, that that little germ seed needed to be killed and squashed and I wish I had the right mentorship that could have done that you know like there's just a there's just so many good ways that you can serve and lead and fulfill the calling that we're given as cadets, as West Pointers, you know, to be leaders for the nation. Um, but yeah, I had that all or nothing um, mindset. And, you know, and, and then a couple of little ways that I crossed wires with, with that uh, brigade commander, you know, I came out on the short end of the stick and uh, decided to get out early. I, I felt like I had more tank in the gas, would have loved to have stayed on for 06 and taken it out further. But, um, but what I ended up doing is I got out in San Antonio and as luck would have it, um, I ended up getting the, the, the local Quad A chapter. It's a 5013C organization. It's called Army Aviation Association. You know, all the branches probably have an association like that that looks after the branch. Um, but I became the chapter president here in San Antonio, but we didn't have any aviation here in San Antonio. The aviation was up the street in Austin where Jim Nugent was. And so Jim and I just started tag teaming this, uh, how to make this chapter work. And, you know, he had, he had guardsmen that were getting out that had served in, in, in Vietnam and all the way to Iraq. And, and, and his, his guys weren't, weren't uh, covered by a quad A chapter. And, you know, this is the case where uh, they're, they're retiring and you induct them into the honorable order of St. Michael and they wear a big medallion. And you saw everybody wearing their dress mess, right? Any branch, any service, any time, the, there's always somebody wearing a medallion that they were given by their fraternal professional group, right? So this is what I'm really talking about that Jim and I started partnering on. And he started cranking them out like, Dan, I got another one. Can you, can you, can you, can you sign up? Can you sign off on this one? And I, as the president, I was the approval authority and I'm seeing these guys with track records, you know, Vietnam, Bosnia, Iraq. Oh my God, this is so easy. Of course, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Um, and Sergeant Majors. And then I figured out how to get money out of the national chapter. And so Jim is putting on dining ins and he's getting $2,000 for this and $2,000 for that, right? 
And uh, so it was, it was a great time. And we, we really managed to bridge an old aviation bias and it may be an army-wide bias, the one that in Vietnam, if you were in the guard, you were a shammer or a get over. Um, if you were the active duty, you were the fighter, you're the elite one. We, we, that all changed in 9-11, right? After 9-11. But the fact that these senior pilots and sergeant majors were, were unaffiliated and un, unawarded for so many, after so many years of service, it was a really, really a rewarding experience to to give that back and fix that, right? So in a way, all of that battalion command, brigade command energy that, that I thought I could have given to the army was pouring itself into these volunteer organizations. And, and, and so in, in San Antonio, I, I, I made a little name for myself and the Air Force equivalent brought me onto their national board. And I, I've been a, a pretty active volunteer with them um, throughout the last 10 years. And, and, and but if we get down to five minutes, I want to share something from an old grad in the spirit of the old grad. And because he's the old grad um, that was here that I met that took me under his wing. And he's a class of January 43. So I wanted to save that for my get off the stage moment. I don't okay. know where we are in time, but. Well, we're actually, so, we're, 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 we're winding down towards the end. I want I want to, and uh, we'll, we'll put a pin in that, the, uh, the aviator uh, perspective. Love to hear just a little bit, a couple more minutes, I think, on your perspective around transition. Because you're 10 years out of transition, but yeah. you said that transition's a big, a big thing. It's a big thing, especially for our classmates that are, you know, just getting out now after, you know, 27, 28, 29 years, uh, you know, the military is like, it's embedded in all of us. It, like no matter when you get out, it's a big, it's a big thing. So tell, so tell me about that transition for you, your observations, uh, perspectives on transition. One of the, looking back, I think I had a new freedom to think um, and, and take on pet projects and such. Uh, I got out right after the great recession, right after, you know, that big downturn and I was just, I had a burning question that I needed to answer. And it was, you know, it had to do with the economy. And so I studied the economy feverishly for a couple of years until I finally got it. And, and my sons basically dubbed me barstool economist because every lacrosse party we would go to, I'd start talking with the other parents about, you know, how money's created, what is the Federal Reserve, what is our national debt, dot, 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 you know. And I was sort of annoying, you might say. But in the 10 years I've been out, I had, I've had more freedom to think. I've had two-year period to study economics. Then I went into a two-year period where I'm studying um, neuroscience and how the brain functions because my family has Alzheimer's. So it's a, it's a nervous energy that I study that. Then that led into when you start studying the big brain neuroscience people, you know, YouTube introduces you to a couple more authors. <clears throat> and then I began a study of philosophy which, which really pulled the pins out of the religious structure that I'd married into. And, and, and I also had a 14 year old who was like, dad, you don't really believe this to you. He, I was being challenged by my youngest son on the belief structure that, you know, we go to church, we say these things, we do these things. And then he asked me a personal question and, you know, you gotta be truthful with your son. And so I started being truthful with myself. Um, like, no, I don't really believe that or that or that led to a period of, of destabilization where your magnetic compass kind of wobbles. I also spent some time studying what we had done in Iraq. I'm like, really, is this another Vietnam? 
was that really worth it? Was all that heart bloodshed and decapitated bodies and all the <coughs> all that crap we had to do as Blackhawk pilots flying that stuff, those heroes around, you know, the carnage you witnessed. And was that really all, was that really all worth this freedom? We're bringing freedom to everybody or are we keeping the shipping lanes open for global hegemony, right? So I got jaded in all of this deep, dark studying I was doing and it led to a period what I call a brush with nihilism and that, and that you don't have that compass or your compass is wobbling. And I had a basically aborted religion. I had a, I got pretty down, turn, turned off by the war and, uh, and war in general. And, uh, and, and the sweet thing was um, I, I, I decided I was going to, and I was, the, the marriage was not showing signs of strain. So I decided I am the problem here. I'm going to go get myself checked out. So I went in to get some therapy. My counselor, class of 69, Doc Tatum. I am hanging out in the office, diploma on the wall. This is going to be fun. So there were times where he would talk for 45 minutes about Vietnam and I would be listening to him. So we had this mutual therapeutic thing going on where he, you know, he, he doesn't get to talk to military people much and let alone a West Pointer. So he loved having me. I, we loved hanging out together. So, so I was, I was getting my, but he gave me permission to understand that change is uh, inevitable when you move from a culture to another culture. It's slow, it's imperceptible, it's glacial, but it's changed nonetheless. And you go through the gyrations of having your, your, your core beliefs questioned and, 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 you, and when you question one, do you have one that replaces it? And, and what will that be? And, and so where are you aiming? Um, so I know in all that, I still, I still believe, you know, like um, I still hear our alma mater May it be, may it be said, well done. That whatever I do in life, whatever we all do as a class, as as graduates, like you want that set of you, and that is the magnetic compass. And it's it's replaced different aspects of of the value system, but that one never shook. That one never went away, right? So I held on to that pretty pretty resolutely. So that was like your north star. So even yeah. even like when 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 religion and these other things began to you know, not have the foundational uh, strength for you, the West Point, uh, be thou at peace or, you know, the duty shall be done. That's, that's your North compass. That, that's your North star. That's your compass. Yeah, there was that, that one. There's no scrutiny there. It's always resonated. You know, you go to the army Navy game and you hear the alma mater song and it just tears me up still, you know? Um, but yeah, that that's a that was just a weird brush with with what I call nihilism, you know, like just that sense of uh, meaninglessness that the things that we once held a lot of meaning no longer do. Um, and it's so Doc Tatum helped me understand that it's just a process of change. You've moved out of an everyday culture where you know the Fox I call it the Fox News paradigm, right? You're it's it's God, family, church, or whatever, you know, and. And I remember being in that mindset and I remember that mindset gripping me so strongly. Like, I can't believe why nobody else can think like I do. This is so, this makes such common sense. This is the, really the best thing for all of America. I don't understand why CNN people don't get it. Right. And, and, uh, but I didn't know why I knew what I knew. And, and I started that journey of why do I know what I know? And uh, why do I believe what I believe? And, and, you know, so self-introspection and I probably have a, it's probably a bad, or I don't know, it's probably a, 
it's not a helpful personality trait all the time. Um, one famous or very popular psychologist named Amy Cuddy has a great phrase. She says, look, if you're in your head, you're behind enemy lines, which I think, oh, I love that. That's so good. Just stop thinking about it. Just get out and do stuff. And so I, I do have the fault where I can overthink things and stay, stay on a subject, deep on a subject for a little while too long. Um, but I think in the end, you get a good conversation out of me. You get, you know, if you sit down at the bar next to me, or if you're in the airplane seat next to me, you're going to enjoy that flight. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to be a pretty talkative <laughs> guy. Let me tell you, I have enjoyed this flight tonight. I mean, and I, Thank I'm you. especially grateful. I'm especially grateful for your willingness to be vulnerable, to talk about like some of the things that are maybe painful to talk about. Um, and, and also to, you know, to not give this facade. I mean, I think we, we know each other well enough as classmates and, you know, to not give this facade of like indestructibility. It's like, Hey, you know, we're, we're vulnerable human beings. We make mistakes. We, we have, we have, we have some, some, some great things that we've done, but also some things that maybe we would love to get a do over on. And I appreciate your, your perspective and your thoughtfulness and uh, your um, insightfulness. And so I'm really, I'm grateful for our conversation tonight. Um, you said, you know, you wanted to leave us with a couple of things and perspectives uh, from this, this old aviator. So why don't, why don't you tell me about that? Yeah. So uh, William R. Stewart Jr. Class of January, 1943. Uh, I met him in 2008. And uh, so he wrote a book. He, he, he passed away in February of this year at age of hundred. And um, my friend and I planted a tree in his honor at the, the, the marker on Fort Sam where the first military flight happened, right? So he's been a great champion of history. So great, uh, amazing guy. I, I, uh, we, we put on a centennial of military flight together and I got to go to meetings with him all the time as that chapter president. And I loved it when he would be in a room with a bunch of lawyers and they're arguing about what can and can't happen. And he just would start telling a story. It was great. But age 99, he wrote a book about his life on Alcatraz Island. His dad was the artillery commander. He lived there as a kid for five years. And at age 99, he published a book on that. I got the book for a few classmates and he signed it for him. Um, but what he does all throughout that book is he tells you stories of West Pointers the West Pointer who took the prisoners off of, out of San Francisco to Alcatraz during the earthquake of 1909. Um, the West Pointer who named that hill up in Austin, the West Pointer. He just had such a great history for all of West Pointers in their contribution. And he always told that story. But what, the, the story I wanna share with you was when he was 92 or three-ish or something like that. And I'll just pick up the reading because I've got it written out. So. On his 90th birthday, Bill started to explain to his great-grandchildren what it meant to, to him to be an American. He was surprised when he burst into tears and couldn't continue. The family asked him to write what he was trying to say, and the result was this. What it means to be an American by William R. Flying Scott Stewart, Jr. I am an American not because I am tall or short, or because I am a boy or girl, or because my skin is white or black or brown, or because I am old or young. I am an American because of how I feel in my heart. I am an American because I feel the role of government should be limited. I am an American because I believe authority should not be centralized, but divided between those who make the laws, those who enforce the laws, and those who interpret the laws. 
I want to live where my conduct is governed by laws that we, the people, have approved. I am an American because I believe the church and the state should be separate. I am an American because I feel the general prosperity is best advanced by those who develop new jobs for everyone and by those who create new things in better ways. I'm an American because I believe in individual liberty and the exercise of individual initiative. I value my freedom, freedom to worship as I choose, freedom from unwarranted search, freedom to protect myself when danger threatens, freedom to say what I want and to read what I want, freedom to go where I want, and freedom from legal presumption I am guilty if accused. I am an American because I believe in the responsibility that goes with my freedom. I am responsible for what I do. I am responsible to control my greed. I'm responsible not to be a burden to others. I'm responsible for my conduct, conduct toward my fellow Americans and toward all human beings. Though I make mistakes, and they are many, and though I do things that are wrong for I am only human, I strive to live my life by these principles. It is the trying that counts. I am proud to be an American because I am part of the noblest social experiment in the history of the human race. I hope you will become an American too. And uh, we read that at his funeral um back in february so it was just a great story great guy great grad so i got my aiming point bill stewart that's Hope beautiful you like man that. thank you yeah thank you thank you for this wonderful conversation tonight thank you for all of our classmates that joined us we, we were constantly had at least 15 to 19 classmates all listening in at, at different times um thank you everybody for joining us happy cinco de mayo uh, make sure you drink up Sean Cowley, Noreen, uh, Darcy, uh, Jim Nugent, Ingrid Powell, Scott Clemson, the rest of you guys that are all there. Have a good time. Um, thank you again, Dan, for being on this, on this whole grad podcast. I'm, I'm so, so grateful to call you classmate and friend. We will be back in, uh, 15 days. Our next guest is going to be, uh, Bernard Seeger, uh, who's going to be our next uh, our next guest on uh, on May 17th. So thank you everybody for joining us and uh, peace out. Stay safe. On this edition of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast, please check back on this Facebook page for information about featured guests and upcoming episodes of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast.